0: Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This episode takes us to Christmas 1901 and the Battle of Groenkorp near Bethlehem in the Free State, where General Christian de Vett catches the British off guard on the top of a 200-foot-high kopje. We will also hear how the opposition party leader Lloyd George in England narrowly escapes being lynched as a pro-Boer Brit in a night of extreme violence. The wobble that Chamberlain, the Liberal Unionist leader and Sir Alfred Milner were most worried about had begun back in England. The taxpayer was now fully aware that they were funding a war in South Africa that appeared never-ending. The Times newspaper had led a revolt against the government, as we heard in previous podcasts. Lord Kitchener was ignored as he complained about the fact that most of the new soldiers arriving in South Africa could neither ride nor shoot straight. That was nothing new in the eyes of the British public. They had heard that excuse since October 1899, and it was now wearing extremely thin. Parliament had been prorogued until after the new year, but mounting expenditure and public anger might force government to go into session again at such a late date in the year. Winston Churchill was pro-government, yet was also warning about what he called a disquieting situation, which in his words was as momentous as it was two years ago. There was public discussion about a new war ministry with suggestions that real soldiers would lead it, along with more hardcore imperialists like Lord Rosebery. Chamberlain was particularly nervous about Rosebery when it came to his own political position. The pro-Boer lobby was in full voice, and this ironically helped shield the government when an incumbent political party has a nationalist and imperialist value chain, and the opposition seeks to assail its weaknesses by radical invective. This, by its very nature, forces neutrals and moderates onto the side of the nationalist and imperialist position, and so it was in England at the tail end of 1901. Individuals who spoke about making peace on any terms were harangued in the imperialist media, and the conciliation committee was jeered at as the Stop the War Party. Meetings were broken up violently, and none more so than the night Lloyd George spoke at Birmingham Town Hall in December 1901. He had consistently delivered an anti-war message for most of the year and he had done so at a variety of places, from the Cambridge Union to the Pithead, from Edinburgh to London. But Birmingham was a different place. It was Chamberlain's diocese who took the opportunity to seek revenge for the attacks on what they saw as Chamberlain's personal honour. When Lloyd George arrived, he made his way through the seething mob outside the hall without being molested, mainly because they couldn't recognise him. Four brass bands were outside playing patriotic airs and marches, while merchants shouted, Half-bricks, three penny to throw at Lloyd George. Merrily they offered their half-bricks for a song. Lloyd George climbed the stairs to the platform, and these same half-bricks were then thrown through the windows. 1,200 were broken along the street. Worse, George, who hadn't said a word, was now in danger of being killed. The enraged mob yelled, Pro-boer, kill him, kill the traitor! Journalists wrote of the screaming women, the noise of the police blowing their whistles, the crash of falling masonry and smashed windows, the furniture flying around the room. Lloyd George only escaped with his life by slipping away, disguised as a policeman. Back in South Africa... The Boers were aware of these attempts to support their cause, but it was as though the newspaper reports came from another planet. For the British soldier, the same applied. They were trapped inside blockhouses, seven men to a blockhouse, with African support. 70,000 men in all by now, lying awake at night, listening to the sound of the felt, waiting for the wire booby traps to be tripped by passing Boers on horses, firing off rounds into the dark and waiting for the train, which passed every day or second day, bringing food, water and ammunition. To the east of Johannesburg, General Louis Wurter had found a sweet spot near the Swaziland border, where he had around a thousand men. But the British generally had improved their strategy and were using Black and Boer intelligence officers, who knew the land well. General Rawlinson was relying on Colonel Aubrey Wool's Sampson, who was an ex-gold miner and ex-commander of the Imperial Light Horse, when it came to strategic ops. Three times in the previous few weeks, wools Sampson had led Rawlinson to Boers, or bang on the top of the lager, as Rawlinson described it in letters, as he had captured a total of 756 Boers. The British lost only three men at the same time. Things were going badly for the Boers in the Eastern Transvaal. One incident in particular highlighted how well the British were now fighting, at least in that part of the theatre. As you'll hear in a while, things were not going as swimmingly for the British based in the Free State, particularly as they bumped up against General Christian de Wet. On the 10th of December 1901, a Tuesday, Rawlinson and Will Sampson were tracking a group of Boers in the eastern Transvaal. As usual, the intelligence officer knew that the secret to beating the Boers was out Boering them, so a lightning raid was planned with 2,000 mounted men. This was no ordinary unit, however, There were 450 black soldiers involved, all on horseback, all extremely well-trained troops that Will Sampson was funding himself. This meant the British government didn't have to explain why they were paying black soldiers in a war that was supposed to be whites only. We struck the road all right soon after midnight, but there was not a sign of a spur on it, so we turned north towards tricard twin "'It was three-thirty when the African boys that Will Sampson had sent on "'returned to say the Boers were all there,' Rawlinson wrote later. "'A tremor of excitement ran through the mounted troops as they jostled forward, "'then became silent. "'I got the second-mounted infantry up quickly on my right, "'whilst I sent Colonel Bimbash Stewart off well to the left.' The British had been riding all night, but they were imbued with renewed energy, knowing their quarry was so close. It was summer, and the dawn begins early. It was just light enough at 3.45am as they crested a rise, and the entire Boer Lager lay before them around 800 yards away. The mounted infantry let go a cheer and a whoop whoop, which must have been a rude awakening to the Lager, a few odd shots, the whiz of one or two bullets, and the whole of our line of over two thousand mounted men set off at a gallop, yelling with delight. The Boers were now trapped between the two flanking units as well. The more the Boers shot, the more we yelled. My orders were that none of the men were on any account to stop at the lager. There was to be no looting of wagons or waiting to shoot. Our objective was to be the mounted Boers, and the gun we heard was with them. The British knew now that they needed to strike straight towards the most highly mobile of the Boer fighters, as these were the most dangerous. I don't think I've seen a prettier or more exhilarating sight than that was in the grey of dawn, the M.I. all streaming away just like a pack of hounds and giving tongue like red Indians. We have a good long gap of nearly seven miles. The British horses were in good health and easily caught up to the Boers. Fifty-three were taken prisoner, six got away, four were shot dead, while the MI had one casualty, an officer slightly wounded in the leg. Then an ominous note from Rawlinson, The stand cost the Boers 16 killed, 4 our men were angry, and shot freely when they got close up. It's generally believed that the Boers were shot after surrendering, or in the process of surrendering. When your blood is up in the heat of battle, things are hard to control. Still, both sides were conducting themselves in a similar manner at this point in the war. A few days later, officer in command of British troops in South Africa, Lord Kitchener, realized that the eastern Transvaal Boers had been largely crippled and sent Rawlinson and Will Sampson to the Free State to help track down Christian de Vend. But he would have the last laugh, at least on Christmas Day. He became more aware of the change in British tactics around this time. At the heart of the northeastern corner of the Free State, there's an archipelago of three small towns, Lindley, Bethlehem and Raits, all grouped in a triangle 40 miles or around 75 kilometers across. After hibernating for a few months, General De Wet, as we heard last week, was itching to find his brother, Pete. It may be Christmas, but he was itching to find him for all the wrong reasons. You see, his brother was now fighting for the British as one of General Andris Cronier's National Scouts. A turncoat. De Vett wanted to kill him. He also wanted to take revenge on the British generally. And the place he did it was near Bethlehem and ironically on Christmas Day. As Thomas Pakenham says, indeed this opportunity was a Christmas present from the local British commanders. It was all because of the blockhouses which De Vett disdained but on this occasion offered him a target. The reason was simple. The weakest point in a line of blockhouses was always the last one. It's the most vulnerable point on the incomplete line, because it is unsupported and engineers would still be working on them. And so it was then that just before Christmas, General Rundle had half-completed the eastern edge of the Great Line, 160 kilometers long, which was being built from the railhead at Harry Smith to link up with the line from Kruenstadt. The line had reached a place called Trierfontein, a farm around 25 miles east of Bethlehem. Rundle made the mistake of allocating a weak force to protect the building. They were weak in type and quality. Worse, he had further weakened them by breaking up the unit into four groups. The main force comprised of 400 yeomanry and two guns and encamped at Grunkop. This was a 200-foot knob of a hill commanding the convoy road from the south. Rundle's own force included a 270-strong group of the Grenadier Guards, 60 mounted infantry and a gun which he plonked down beside the wagon road. 130 other infantry members of the East Yorks were guarding the actual head of the blockhouse line and a regiment of 400 irregulars, or the Imperial Light Horse, were stationed at Eerlands River Bridge, 13 miles east. In chapter 33 of his book, The Three Years' War, De writes, It was time that I accomplished something further and I determined that the next blow I should strike should be a heavy one. This was bad news for Rundle. The vet had concealed his men in the felt around a canyon called Tiger Daigerkloof, whilst he made his plans. Colonel Furman's brigade was camped between Bethlehem and Addysmith at Elons River Bridge, where he was building a line of blockhouses between the two towns, he writes. Rundle was Furman's officer commanding, but Devet gave up the idea of attacking the 400 Imperial Light Horse De Wett needed to flush Furman out of his trenches and needed a ruse. With this object in view, I sent for Commandant Jan Jacobs with his 50 men from Witsitsuk. He then sent word via Falconets to a black village nearby that he was heading off to Winberg. The villagers dutifully passed on his message to the British. Meanwhile, Commandant Jacobs joined De Wett with his 50 men and sent word to Falconet Bjorkes to bring 50 more from the Wilcher River. Yeah, Harry Smith, in order to reinforce Tibet's commander, Colonel Furman was encamped on the summit of Khrunkov. I approached as near as possible to the mountain, but could only expect it from the west, north and east. But on the following day, I reconnoitred it also from the south. The English then moved most of their men off the mountain on the 21st of December 1901 and onto the eastern slopes, where they dug trenches for four days that worried Devet but he wasn't finished. He could not see exactly where the two British guns were, and the artillery on such open ground would be deadly if he didn't know where they were dug in. Luckily, three black scouts rode out of the camp cautiously, and Captain Portkita and Commandant Ullufierd of Devet's commander, commando made a detour to try and capture them, but the gunners spotted the boers and opened fire, and Devet simultaneously spotted the gunners. Furman and Rundle were also armed with a Maxim Nordenfeld automatic cannon, which were placed on the high western point of the mountain, from which they could shoot in all directions. They had a perfect field of fire. De was in a quandary about which direction to launch his attack. Some of the officers were of the opinion that this should take place on the east, where it was the least steep, but I differed from them. For through our field glasses we could see that the walls of the fort were so built that it was clear the enemy had thought that should they be attacked, it would be from the east. The wily general saw that the trenches and what he called forts, but were probably redoubts or trenches topped with corrugated iron, were built in a semicircle towards the east. He had to attack them from the opposite direction, the west. But I did not know then how steep it really was, he admits. On the western point of Grunkop, there were four redoubts close to each other, and each was large enough to shelter around 25 men. To the south, there were four redoubts and to the east, three. De Wet sent word to the commander from his hidden vantage point during the afternoon of 24th December for all to gather near the Dagerkloof. They should travel only at night and move into position and remain there without lighting fires, and then to advance within four miles of Frunkorp from the north. General De Wet rode to meet them. I found the commander at the appointed place, and also General Brandt and Commandant Karl Kutzia, who had come on a visit that day to my commander. They also took part in the attack. His commander was led by Commandants Boerter van Kola, Ullufir, Reutenbach, Kuhn, Jakobs, and Meers. 600 Boers were now gathered in silence just north of Rhunkorp. He left 100 behind in charge of the Boers' only heavy weapon, their Maxim Nordenfeld, as well as all the pack horses. Remember by now De vet travelled without wagons. Later that night, he gave the order for each commando leader to ride out by itself in single file. My orders were that they were to march quietly to the western front of the mountain. Here yeah, the horses were to be left behind, and the climb made on foot, the burghers keeping the same order as that in which they had been riding. He also gave a clear order that should the English discover the commander, they should rush the camp immediately. We succeeded in coming to the mountain unobserved, and at once began the climb. It was exactly two o'clock in the morning of December 25th, 1901. Minutes ticked by as the Boers slipped and slithered up the steep sides. The craggy west face of the hill seemed insurmountable, yet there was in fact a line of a gully to help the burghers scramble to the summit. Negligently, the British had failed to station pickets below the face, a mistake for which they would pay dearly. But a sentry on the summit spotted the Boers. A hazy moon had lit the trail, helping the Boers see, but also revealed a little more than they would have wanted. Halt! Who goes there? shouted one of the sentries, followed by a few shots. Tibet yelled, "Bergers, storm! And they did. The mountain, however, was so steep that it can scarcely be said that we stormed it. It was much more of a climb. Often our feet slipped from under us and we fell to the ground, but in an instant we were up again and climbed on and on to gain the summit. The British were emerging from their tents sleepily around a hundred yards down the eastern slope. Directly, we reached the top. A deafening roar of a heavy fight began and lasted from 15 to 20 minutes. The Armstrong gun and Maxim Nordenfeld gunners had fired a few shots, but they were then shot down themselves. After a short, desperate struggle, the English surrendered and the Boers now had two more heavy weapons, which they dragged away. The remaining English troops retreated to the next hill, fired back at the Boers, then repeated the pattern until the Boers gave up the chase. As we had no horses with us and it was dark, we did not pursue the fleeing enemy but returned to the camp. The battle lasted an hour in total, and Devet was impressed by the fighting qualities of the yeomen. I must say they behaved very gallantly under exceptionally trying circumstances. One of those men was Trooper Bowers. He was interviewed years later by the BBC and revealed more about the attack, things that Devet did not say in his book. You see, the Boers were using dum-dum bullets. Bowers rushed from his tent and sought refuge behind a sack of oats along with another soldier. A bullet went through his stomach, tore the oat sack and went through his stomach. He yelled in agony and was very quickly dead. There were others behind the sacks, including a 17-year-old lieutenant called Watney. A very dandy fellow, whom we used to make fun of, he was in the Middlesticks yeomanry. He died most bravely. When the Boers came, shouting and shooting, young Watney, with his revolver in his hand, shouted, Come on, boys, charge! Well, that, of course, was a very noble thing to say, but perfectly ridiculous. As Watney stood with two others, they were shot down. Bowers and the British survivors were then herded into a tent. Presently, a black-bearded chap with a shambok in his hand came and put his head in the tent and said, don't move, or we'll shoot you. And when he was gone, the sentry said, Don't you know who that was? That was General Christian De Wett. The English lost 116 dead and wounded, 240 others prisoners. But the Boers also suffered heavily, considering their dwindling force. 14 dead and 30 wounded. Amongst those who died were Commandant Ullefir from Harry Smith and De Wett's own staff member and relative, Chat De Wett. However, they had seized the Armstrong and the Maxim Nordenfeld. 20 wagons, a huge quantity of rifles and ammunition, guns, tents, 500 horses and mules, and a wagon loaded with rum. So that the burghers, who were not averse to this, could uh, now satisfy their thirst, wrote David. De Devet allowed his men the time to swig from the bottles they had earned their booty, but their enjoyment didn't last too long. Trooper Bowers was taken from the tent at daylight, and like the other British, saw that from the terrible wounds the Boers had used the soft-nosed dum-dum bullets. Captain Bryce had the bottom of his face shot away. Bowers was ordered to carry the wounded to a makeshift hospital and was soon caked in blood from head to foot. Then there was an incongruous moment as the sun rose. Some of Devet's men were so short of uniforms that they had been wearing the poke bonnets and black dresses of the Boer Froe. Bowers didn't have long to ogle the cross because he was stripped naked and then sent stumbling back to Rundle's camp without a stitch of clothing. Devet had a decision to make. The sun had hardly risen when the enemy opened fire from a mountain two miles to the northeast of Groenkorp, where there was a little camp with one gun. Devet ordered his men north of Bethlehem and sent the prisoners from there through Nauport into Basutulan, modern-day Lesotho. Back in Pretoria, Lord Kitchener snorted that Grünkorp was just another example of Christmas slackness. That may be so, but the vet's mystique was irritating the hardened British commander-in-chief. We must call a halt now. Next week, we'll rejoin Denise Reitz, who has been lost in the Cape trying to reconnect with Smuts's commander. As you'll hear, the man with nine lives will use up another as he heads north. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. And you can also send me a message through the website abwarpodcast.com or contact me through my Twitter handle at Des Latham. I want to wish each of my many listeners a happy Christmas. May your day be filled with good cheer and may your cup runneth over. Until next week, goodbye. Dan onder de langs die mooi de valte pro los da blei. O bring me terug naar je oer daar waar mijn hart Daar onder in die mild is bij die groen door een boom, daar won mijn hart mare. Daar onder in die mild is bij die groen door een boom, daar won mijn hart